Hello, my name is Amber Johnson, and welcome to the Public Health Me podcast. This podcast will explore a wide range of topics, from social determinants of health to COVID-19 and immunity to women's empowerment. The goal of this podcast is to have candid conversations with people who are subject matter experts, students, people who are growing leaders in the fields of public health and medicine, to have these conversations that will answer the questions and really help to spark the interest of people who are not only asking the questions in the general public, but are interested in the fields of public health and medicine alike. Thank you so much for your support of this podcast and for joining me on this journey. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining the Public Health Me podcast. This episode will be focused on women's health initiatives. And today I have Natrina Kennedy, who is a community mobilizer and social entrepreneur from the South Side of Chicago. She has a love for the community and a passion for breaking systemic barriers. She founded the Women's Health Initiative WHI in 2017, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to building a society where all women and young girls are empowered and live healthy lives free of social, racial, and economic barriers. Natrina is a two-time alumna of Loyola University in Chicago, where she received her Bachelor's of Science in Health Systems Management in 2017, and a Master's of Public Health concentrated in Health Policy and Management in 2020. Her professional experience thus far has included healthcare administration, human resources, operations, quality improvement, strategic planning, telehealth, community health, project management, health policy, and systems change. She is an outcome-driven individual aspiring to advance public health. She spent nearly 10 years in community work and utilizes her voice to challenge inequities that will empower individuals by improving individual health, creating healthier families, and ultimately a more unified society. So thank you so much for being here, Natrina. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to just, you know, have a chance to talk to you and talk to the public today about all of these great things that's happening in public health. Fantastic. And I'm sure we're going to have like a wealth of knowledge to share with them today (laughs) with our women's health initiatives that we're really going to get into. And as we get into the topics, we want to make sure that people understand that, you know, a lot of this is not going to be extremely data driven, not a lot of statistics that we're going to be pushing on people, but really from a broad lens of what we've seen in our studies and in our careers and just overall in our communities. And it's such a big deal to see it from so many different lenses so that we can understand and have a broader understanding of what's going on in these communities and not just throwing out data just because we hear it or see it or whatever. It's really about immersing yourself in the culture and in the community as we learn in public health. So I think it's going to be a fantastic chat today. I wanted to talk about really women's health disparities in urban and rural areas. And a lot of data points to the fact that a lot of women in rural and frontier areas, they're affected by access issues and specifically the lack of primary and specialty care. So the latter has a major impact on rural women, especially as it includes OBGYN services. Mm -hmm. And rural areas, of course, tend to have 
higher rates of chronic diseases to include heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. So when we're really looking at a lot of these data points and really understanding that rural health is really, it's like a segregation in terms of what people have access to, as opposed to, you know, as you've seen being in an urban city, I'm sure that there's a level of access depending on what, you know, ward you live in, but also it becomes a little bit rural in its nature in terms of the accessibility to quality services at the end of the day. And I think that that plays a big role in terms of just people's socioeconomic status, their education, and really what's going on in their communities, as you know, many of us have seen living in urban cities. And for, I think a lot of times when it comes to the rural nature of things, people kind of shun like a blind eye on these situations that are happening in these areas, but there are not a lot of areas in the US that are necessarily considered urban. If you look at these geographical maps, when you have these data points, there's not a lot of areas that are highlighted in these particular colors. So a lot of areas in the United States are considered rural, which means they're not going to have physicians that are going to be delivered to these particular areas or are gonna to want to stay in these areas after they finish studying or, you know, even coming back from a large institution, say you're from rural Iowa, and then you go off to, you know, University of California or something like that, it, those kinds of systems, you're not going to really want to go back to rural Iowa, unfortunately. And it's sad to see that a lot of the training gets taken away from these areas and people are kind of stuck with this, not subpar care, but their care could be improved if they had more specialists in these particular areas. So I really want to kind of throw the ball your direction <laughs> and talk about urban areas and what's going on in Chicago. Yeah, we see a lot of similar experiences with disparities in urban areas, too. In some cases, they're identical, while in others, they're slightly different. In rural health, um, we see a lot of different environmental health concerns. We see a lot of different issues with the opioid crisis and access to quality care and resources. And some of those things are very similar to what we're seeing here in Chicago as well. Um, and with my organization, we actually focus on women of color. And so in a lot of our research and a lot of our um, work is actually geared towards like, how can we really um, give women of color um, better health outcomes and give them a shared voice um, and shared power as it relates to having um, autonomy as it relates to their health as well. Um, and so some of the disparities that we see here on the far south side is access to quality of care. Like for instance, with women of color on the far south side, only 50% of these women actually have access to adequate prenatal care resources. And we have one out of three individuals in our community that actually have access to healthy food options. In most cases, it takes people 15 minutes by car to get to what the nearest grocery store. And we see that a lot of people in our, in our communities actually spend more than 40% of their household income just trying to live. So when we start talking about like, if I need to take 15 minutes on the bus to go to the grocery store and I'm only the only person that has access to the grocery store, am I going to buy food that's only going to last me a week or two weeks? And I'm going to have to, we have to really start thinking more about all of those different factors when we start thinking about health. Same thing for the hospital resources. In Chicago, we have plenty of medical centers, but none of them actually are housed in our communities. We have on the south side within um, the zip code that we're launching our community project is the 60628 zip code. And for people who are familiar with um, Chicago, um, that's the Roseland area, West Pullman and Pullman communities. And 
we only have Roseland Hospital, which is actually a safety net hospital. And a lot of people are unaware that safety net hospitals are not equipped to deal with certain types of health concerns or issues. And so like when we start talking about traumas and, and really like needing those types of resources, we don't have them. So we have to travel out 30, 40 minutes to the nearest <laughs> actual hospital that can take care of us. So when we start talking about how do we actually have um, healthy outcomes for these people, one, we need to listen to them. We need to understand like, what are the things that you need and how can we help you? And so when we start talking specifically about like urban health, it can be just as equivalent to rural health because we are segregated. If you go to Northside Chicago, which is from where I'm sitting right now is a 20 minute, in some cases, 30 minute drive. They have plenty of resources. They have grocery stores on, the, on their corners and in their communities. They have access to clinics and not just like medical centers, but they actually have urgent health clinics right there on their block where they can walk to and we don't have that. So these disparities are real. And if you look at like the life expectancy for people of color, and then especially for like black or brown women, we see that this is actually expecting our, our longevity, which becomes then an intergenerational issue as well. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's so, it's such a profound topic to really get into because even as we look at the pandemic, We've seen so many instances where there were lack of, you know, hospitals, lack of staff. And, you know, as we talked about on one of the prior episodes of my podcast, when we talked about health equity, we discussed how some hospitals were being turned have been turned into, you know, apartment buildings or condominiums or usable living space. But what about these communities? They're not being rerouted elsewhere. You're just kind of getting subpar care that's left over and or stuck with, you know, merging hospitals that are not necessarily equipped to deal with various things. You lack the ICU beds for people. If you have an ICU at all, then you think about, God forbid, someone has a trauma, someone gets into a car crash, then you have to medevac someone to the nearest, you know, level one trauma center. And that becomes an issue in and of itself, because at the end of the day, you're thinking about how much time is it going to take, first of all, for the helicopter to get there, first responders to get there to, to begin with, then the medevac, and then getting to the hospital. It may be, you know, a 15 minute quick ride or something of that nature, but think about the length of time that that person has now spent in between these particular, these modes and routes and getting On into the, the situation. the side of Chicago, it, there's a known fact that it takes at least 15 minutes for an ambulance to get to your home after you call 911. Um, and in 15 minutes, a lot can happen in the body physically and even like environmentally um, and for like we talk about like trauma in a lot of our work, too. And so and at least in Chicago, there's this sense of um, security around like our neighborhoods as well. And we've done a lot of research. And what we found is like many of these people on the South side, they feel just fine living in their communities. They, they don't feel unsafe. They don't feel any lack thereof as far as like, can they go outside or things like that. But what we see is that when we start talking about like outsiders, and I'm using outsiders for lack of better words, entering into the community, that's where we need resources. That's where we need a little bit of more um, community development. Because if nobody's interested in coming into our communities and um, like I said, building an urgent clinic or um, building resources, um, at least what I've seen here is that 
we do have a couple of uh, major hospitals like University of Chicago. I've seen them in literally in like the last year to actually come into the community and say, how can we help you? How can we come further south? Because they are on the south side, but they're not on the far south side. Um, you know, Chicago is huge. And, and when we start talking about like life expectancy, the city of Chicago, um, don't quote me, but I think life expectancy right now is 77 um, for the average person across gender, across race, across all those demographics. But in the 606 way, which is the pr primarily a big portion of the far south side, the average life expectancy is 70. And so that is a big difference when we start talking about years taking off someone's life because we don't have the capacity in our health system and in public health to really tailor our resources to fit these needs. And this is what we talk about when we say equality versus equity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think it's a really good point to help people to understand that this is what's going on in a lot of these communities. A lot of people want to turn a blind eye to these situations and not even within 15, 20 minutes away from these affluent neighborhoods, we're seeing major health disparities. And that has to change, especially as public health professionals. I think we're really shining a light on what's going on in these communities and how communities can be empowered from within not realizing that it doesn't need to necessarily have outsiders come in and say, well, how can we help you or do whatever mm -hmm. for you? A lot of times it really comes with these community health workers and setting up clinics within these local communities and empowering people in those communities to actually go for, you know, jobs in these healthcare fields and allied health fields so that they can contribute and give back to their communities because they know exactly what the communities need. They've lived through it. They've gone through it for however many years. So it's, it's so hard sometimes to see when people that know nothing about the communities tell the communities what they need or give resources to a particular area of the community, not realizing that that's not what they want or that's not where a lot of their issues lie in. So I, I think it's super, super important that you brought up that point. So a lot of the levels of inequities, because it's it's a huge deal, especially in, you know, terms of talking about public health. And a lot of people love to use Chicago as an example, because I think it's a huge and amazing example of how within, sometimes even within the same zip code, mm -hmm. you have these major health disparities. You have people prone to gang violence, gun violence, all kinds of things. Whereas, you know, maybe about 10 minutes up the street, there's like affluent neighborhoods. People don't venture over that county line or that city line or whatever boundary it's in, and I think it's just like, wow, how amazing is that to see? It is, um, I'm also born and raised in Chicago on the South Side too. It, it is amazing, but also hard to fathom at times um, because it is very real. It's, and, it's, and when I say it's hard to fathom, not because some of these things are like, you know, like I've lived through it, like you said, like that's something that I've experienced as well, to see how deep this goes is what's really hard to solve. It's like, wow, like this is, this is our lives. This is a reality for us. But it's funny you talk about um, these lived experiences in our recent community project. We just launched this for our, um, our, a five-year community project under um, WHI. And it's called the Color of Care. And care stands for culture, active self-care, resilience, and education. And it's really like the framework for this project. And the idea behind the color of care is that, believe it or not, the color of someone's 
skin really makes a difference in our society. And especially as it relates to how we receive care and our health outcomes. So we started off with the call of care being a mental health project because mental health, of course, as we've all heard many times, especially now during COVID, is really apparent how important our mental health is. But also as it relates to the body, how we perceived our experiences, how we lived through our experiences, that shaped our health outcomes as well. Um, and so specifically, that's why this project is a mental health project, but we started in the community. You tell us what you need. You tell us what are your experiences? How is, what is your day like from, from today to tomorrow? You tell us what are some things that you want to share with other people? Um, and we've done it in a couple of different ways, like with community video blogs, with um, where women in the community can share their stories via social media or in writing. And now we're starting to move a little deeper as it relates to partnerships with other um, members in our communities and really trying to figure out like, how can we, like you say, you, you look into the community and leverage their experiences and say, I'm gonna help you, not because I just wanna swoop in and save everybody, but because, we really want to see these women thrive. And it started off as a policy, WHI itself started off as a policy portfolio, pretty much looking at access to care and quality of care for women of color with maternal and mental um, mortality. And from that, we just, it just went <laughs> into like a bigger case because that those issues, those disparities are not just maternal mortality. It's a part of the everyday experiences of, of black and brown women. Um, and we see this as early as middle-aged kids where these traumas, these everyday experiences, they're affecting your health for the rest of your life. Um, and so when we, when we say intergenerational, that is something that is a part of public health. And so what we've seen is when, when these women share their stories with each other, that social support, that social cohesion actually helps their health outcomes too. And so I think you're really on to something when you say that, you know, starting in a community can be powerful because that's something that I feel like most healthcare systems don't do. Yeah, I think it's so key. And recently I was watching this video, they focused on immigrants and they focused on, you know, them coming to the U.S. and how when they kind of assimilated into the culture, you saw worse health outcomes within five years of them coming into the country. And that's like men, women across the board type thing. And they looked at a small town in Pennsylvania and they looked at the, the rates of like affluent, how these things are affecting people. But one of the things that allowed for some of these immigrants' lives to be a little bit better were their family ties back home. And I think we don't put enough emphasis on the fact that family ties and having a small community, when they had their family members being able to come here, and you know, when they were able to go back to their home countries, you saw that their health outcomes weren't as poor, because they were able to, you know, unify themselves with those groups of people that they really, really love and care about. And I think that's a powerful thing in public health. And just in general, in terms of the way that we look at social sciences, the fact of when we are able to create these spaces where the home 
where the family ties are not severed, where they're not burdened by so many different things going on, whether it be violence, whether it be various other things that may happen to affect comorbidities, you really start to see that people start to have better health outcomes. So why is it that the family unit and the structure is not where we're starting first? Because that's a huge deal. I, it's so crazy. Um, you're like really speaking to my heart and my soul right now. <laughs> But, you know, you're you're touching on a few things that I want to speak on. And I think this is important when we talk about public health, especially when we talk about minorities and people of color. And this is a huge game changer because when you talk about severing those family ties and those community ties, well, in a lot of cases where Black and brown people systemically that has been done, structurally that has been done, which is totally different than on an individual level. When you start talking about redlining or when you start start talking about like our educational systems and all these other things that really shape our lives, they can be barriers to our health or they can help us thrive. But we have to have systems that support that too. It's only so much that I can do on an individual level. And when we talk about a system that is not built to help us, that's the game changer. That's the life changer. And that's why we, why we start to see that for a city, we could have a, a life expectancy of 77, but for a Black community, we see a life expectancy of 70. That's not pure individual. That's not pure community. That's, just, that's systematic. That's structural racism. That's discrimination. That's lack of resources and lack of help. And so... And the second point that I want to talk about, too, is in our project, what you're describing is what we refer to as culture. In some cases, people, they define culture as community. In our case, we describe it as anything that connects you to a community. And that's very different because I'm a part of this Black female community. I'm also a part of the South Side of Chicago community. I'm also a part of the public health community. And so there are different connections there, right? But if you don't feel like you're a part of a community or if you don't feel like you're accepted into a community, that starts to affect your social and mental health. And what we're seeing in the Black and Brown community is that as it relates to our mental health and stress particularly, people who identify with a community and who have a better connection to their culture, they actually have access to resources and things that help them practice self-care better. So like for instance, We've seen like a lot of millennials in the black community, they've used, especially now during COVID, we've seen people use like yoga and music and art and all of these things to really practice self-care, to really practice decompressing and working on their stress and their mental health overall. And those things, those are things that help create healthy outcomes as well. So culture and community is really a perspective thing as well. And so we tap into that a little bit in our projects. Um, like we're going to be partnering with a new wellness brand. And we're going to be doing breathing ciphers because, you know, with young people, the rap, the, the arts and all these things and um, music in general, the arts in general, is something that we connect to. And this is something that goes all the way back to Africa. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Africa, but they sit on their porch, they listen to music and even eating. If we eat healthy and if we have access to healthy foods, I wholeheartedly believe that people will eat healthier if they were taught that, if they were aware about that, if they had access to it. When we start talking about things like that and stress and all these social determinants of health, those things are 
are in the eye of the beholder. Like I said earlier, if I have, if I'm a single mom and I'm only making 30,000 in a city like Chicago, where it costs a couple of dollars just to get bread or milk or, you know, I can go to McDonald's and get a whole meal for cheaper. And so I think that when we start thinking more about equity, those things should come natural for us, especially as public health professionals. We need to step into the shoes of the people that live in the community instead of trying to speak for them, as you mentioned earlier. And I think that is empowering and people and people want to do that. But what I'm noticing is that in our community, that's not a thing. That's not a norm. So we've been working to you know, make it so that people want to feel comfortable and they trust us to do so, which is also a whole different, um, a whole different thing that we can talk about for hours. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I thought about when you were discussing just the overall, when people go to the grocery store and when they're spending X amount of money on things, you think about the fact that in a lot of these communities and these urban communities, there's this level of marketing that is basically driven towards particular communities of color Mm -hmm. for fast food restaurants, for, you know, clothing, for various other things to get people really drawn in. And sometimes the emphasis is placed a little bit heavily on, you know, fast food resources or, you know, having the newest Jordans or having various things and not realizing that sometimes people are sacrificing their rent money to get their their kids the new PS5 or the new Jordans and various other things. And it's so sad to see that the emphasis is not being placed on health, that it's being placed on status because status is one of those things that people have been striving to attain for so many years since slavery was abolished, even before then. It's one of those things that it becomes systemically ingrained in someone's foundational right. beliefs and their their thought processes that okay you know we can eat out fast food that's what my mom did for me that's what you know their parents did and they didn't have these accessibility to healthier resources or better outcomes or better thought processes about what to place importance on within their community and I think it's really sad to see when we as African Americans we find ourselves in this situation of Is it going to be education that we're placing our, you know, all of our eggs in one basket or, you know, healthy eating? We have to choose from this wheel of things in order to survive. And sometimes those things go into the back of people's brains because it's like, okay, I want to make sure that my kid, you know, can at least eat something. It's not, we're not worried about if they're eating, you know, their daily amount of the daily serving of vegetables or fruits or various other things. Some people don't even know what constitutes a fruit or vegetable in some cases. And that becomes a bigger issue in terms of educating our populations and understanding that this is a huge deal, especially when you have, you know, a lot of times in some of these communities, single mothers trying to provide for their families off of one income, you split that 30,000 a couple different ways. 30,000 may be okay for you, but when you split that uh, among, you know, several people in your household, then you fall below the federal poverty line and you find yourself in these circumstances where you're relying on social services and social programs to be able to get through, but people are buying things in bulk, like the the top ramen and various other things in order to be able to sustain, as you previously indicated, that, you know, you're not going to buy a salad that's going to go bad within a few days. You're going to buy something that is maybe frozen or something that's processed so that you can kind of get through. You know, you 
you touched on some amazing points. And I think it should be noted that you talked about choosing and, and having to prioritize. If it's not readily available or accessible to you, that's what forces you to choose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and like I'm using the grocery store as an example because it's, we've been talking about it a few times, but if I had a grocery store at the end of my block instead of a liquor store or a candy store, then I, I wouldn't have to think more so about like, hmm, you know, do I really want to buy this? No, because naturally I would start buying, you know, more foods and things that, you know, are going to make me healthier. Or if I go to the grocery store and I didn't have all the chips and junk in front of me as soon as I walk in <laughs> or at the checkout line, as you say with marketing, it wouldn't be at the forefront of my brain. So I think that that is something that stands out to me. And then when we start talking about Black women, and in some cases too, brown women from my understanding, I don't know if you've ever heard of this. I guess it's like a concept or like a theory. Um, it's called the Strong Black Woman Schema. And the idea behind this is that the preservation of self, family, community, when we naturally hold that too, and that's been something that centuries we've been able to do that naturally, like it's just innate for us. But these having to bear all of that work, all of that prioritizing, all of that stress and being like the, the caregiver or being the nurturer for centuries, that is also learned behavior that can lead to stress. And stress by itself can cause so many health issues. It could kill you. I know that from our research, this is something that women in our community that we've worked with, that we've talked to, they bear witness to this. But because they're, as you say, they're surviving. They're not thriving. They're surviving. They're thinking every day, when I wake up, what do I have to do to take care of myself and my kids? They don't have the luxury of thinking about thriving. <laughs> they're trying to preserve their, themselves on a day-to-day -day basis. And it reminds me, when I had my first fundraiser, we had like different touch points and different speakers. And I actually had a woman and she was a woman of the community. She's a teacher by trade and she's a mother. She lives with depression and other mental health concerns and issues. And she actually shared what her life is like every single day. Some days she don't wanna take a shower. Some days she has a hard time eating. Some days she just cries. And the next day she'll be totally fine and happy. And she talked about like living through that experience. And when I looked out into the audience, I saw so many Black women crying and, and just because they felt that. They lived through that. Um, those same stories that she was sharing, they had experienced. And, and at the end of the fundraiser, so many people went up to her and to myself and was like, I love this. And, and it just reminded me like how, how so simple of a fix that is. If we could just bring people together and they can and we can say, hey, you are not going through this by yourself. You're not living through this by yourself. That um, and sometimes we know that, but we don't consciously accept that. And I think that when we start thinking about disparities and inequities, like those experiences are uplifting. Um, those experiences can literally save a life. And in that case, we, I can tell you at least 30 connections were made by that woman sharing her story and saying, this is my reality. And, and that by itself, if we have like a couple of health systems that did weekly or monthly, um, you know, community circles or healing circles, and, and we're talking about 
systematically in like black communities, these are this, none of this is new. Racism as a public health emergency is not new. As a crisis is not new. This has been going on for centuries. Now it's being preserved more and it's at the forefront of everybody's thoughts because of media. This is not something that I or you have ever not experienced. <laughs> and so when we start talking about like, these are things that we've been taught how to survive through. These are things that we're learning. It's not nothing that, and I'm talking when I'm, when I'm saying it, I'm talking about racism specifically now, is the, that is something that as we see, people are getting shot and killed because of the color of their skin. We have to think about as public health professionals, these, this is how they feel. And in, in many cases, this goes beyond feelings. This, go, this goes into lived experiences every single day. How do I deal with that? Because that affects my health too. If every day I got to think about if I go outside, I might get shot. That's stressful. <laughs> Absolutely. And even just thinking about the burden of African-American women who have black sons. Every single yes. day you're concerned about him walking out the door or just even being in his house, his neighborhood, being on the porch. I'm sure in a lot of cases with the gun violence in Chicago, people have been literally sitting on their porches with their family members and people have done drive-bys for gang initiations or, you know, mistaken identity, things like that. And these are things that really traumatize a lot of these communities of color. It's not just Black. It's not just Hispanic. It's a lot of different communities of color across the world because exactly. it can. It, we see it happening in different ways in, you know, Middle Eastern countries and various other things. We're not calling it gang violence. We're calling it something completely different. And the narrative is completely different. And a lot of times we have to realize that us as women, we really carry the weight of the world. We really carry the weight of so many different stressors within our community network and understanding that we have to have a community, not even just within our own small circle, but within ourselves to really overcome and survive a lot of these traumas that constantly plague us. It's, we're not focused on the thought process of, am I going to make sure that, you know, everything is clean or certain way in my house every single day, you're trying to worry about surviving. What is it going to take for you to be able to survive with your young sons that may be African-American or, you know, your husband or significant other going out into the world? There's a lot of different things. And a lot of times I've seen even in African-American communities where, of course, I think this is like a cultural thing, something that probably stems way back to like slavery times where they will cook the meal, of course, for their significant other, their husband, whoever, and their children, but they'll be the last ones to eat. Mm -hmm. And that's a big deal. I, I feel like even myself, I do it all the time. And I have to really stop doing that and telling myself, oh my gosh, I'm not just going to make dinner for him first. And then like me not eat until an hour or so later. And it becomes a whole big thing where I'm not putting my health first. I'm putting someone else's priority over my own. And a lot of times as women, that's what we do. And our health seems to suffer because of it, because we have all these stressors, because we're trying to meet the demands and the needs of, you know, securing everything else outside of, you know, just even securing our money, our careers, our family, all of it. It's so much to really deal with. And it becomes a huge deal for our overall health. Think about the fact that I want to say back in the early 2000s, between, oh, it was between 1990 and 2010, that there were a huge amount of African-American women or just women in general who did not get mammograms, who didn't go for preventative services. 
and, you know, going to the, to the doctor, because you're constantly trying to make sure that everyone is okay. And you put yourself last. And of course, in 2010, there was nearly like three fourths of women who had major racial and ethnic groups being reported something as simple as a pap test within the last three years. So we're thinking about these rates of like breast cancer, cervical cancer, things that literally take out African-American women every single year because they're diagnosed so late because we're constantly trying to put everyone else and every other priority before ourselves instead of making our health our priority. I agree wholeheartedly. And this is something that I've had many conversations with, with women across many communities here and in many other places too and um, overseas as well. And, you know, one of the things that stood out for me is that I just quickly thought back to, I had a focus group about a year or two ago. One of the things that became a big part of the conversation is how Black women um, were saying, like, they will tell, like, their doc, this is what I'm experiencing, I'm in pain, and, like, their doctors would naturally be like, oh, it's not that bad, or you can deal with more, and and so when we start talking about, like, these biases that are embedded into systems, that's a totally different, <laughs> that's a whole different problem by itself. Absolutely. So it's not the only, it's not only that we are being diagnosed late, but it's how we've been perceived when we go and we seek help. Um, and then also, too, we have barriers, like, like money and insurance, too, at least here. Um, there's a, a nice it's not a high number, but a good population that still does not have medical insurance. And then too, we also have the barrier of quality care being given to those the individuals who do not have certain types of health insurances too, because I've been in places where they don't take Medicaid, they don't take HMOs. And so now we're talking about quality of care being given to those who can afford better health insurances as well. So we, we don't talk about that as much um, because now we have things that can, you know, we have resources that where people can still get Medicaid and, you know, ins, you know, insurances like that. But there's still a barrier that goes beyond that because if I can't afford Blue Cross Blue Shield PPO, um, <laughs> what type of care am I going to get? And then that becomes a stressor as well because now I'm working towards something that may not be attainable for me because I'm trying to seek help that I otherwise cannot get. And that's, that has been common in our work as well. And I just want to point out, this was a survey that I came across when I was doing my research as a graduate student. I think it was a national health survey. And they actually did um, a self-reported survey that captured the number of mentally unhealthy days um, across different demographics. And what they found was that 5% of Black women actually spend the majority of their months having mentally unhealthy days. And this could be due to depression, it could be due to stress, it could be due to many different reasons. Most of them are or could be prevented based off of those economic and social barriers that me and you have been talking about thus far. Um, but when we start thinking about 5% of Black women, and don't quote me on this stats, but if from my understanding, I don't know if this is recent data points, <laughs> we can verify later, but on the, the U.S. is only 13% Black. Mm -hmm. So when we say 5% of that 13%, that's, a small, that's, a, that's not that small of a number of women that's having um, mentally unhealthy days. And we start talking about unhealthy days. How do you navigate your day if you're not in the right frame of mind to tackle the day? We talk about, and this is feelings of sadness, feelings of worthlessness. These are common threads. This is not just one or two women struggling. This is, this is a common theme 
that's trending and that's populating across the entire country. And we have still yet to really find a, a solid solution. Or as you say, we have people coming to the community, you know, here and there. But what's something that we can do on a national level? What's something that we can do collectively? Because now we're not talking about just the systems. We're talking about reaching people where they are at. We're talking about digging deep into these pe to people's hearts. Because racism isn't just systemic. Racism is embedded in folks. It's ingrained in folks. It's a part of who they are in many cases. And so, yeah, we can teach people how to be a better doctor, how to, be a, how to think through biases in medicine. But if we're not changing hearts, if we're not really doing the public health work, as we mentioned earlier, then it's all for nothing and people are going to continue to die and, and we're going to continue to see poor health outcomes. And we've seen that for centuries, like as you said earlier, this is nothing new. It's just being presented in different ways. Absolutely. You're 100% spot on. And one of the things I really thought about was just the overall number of people that have been uninsured in the last 10 years. I saw a statistic that indicated that there were like 23 million women of color who were disproportionately represented and were uninsured in 2011. That's not even like 20 years ago. This is like within the past 10 years. So we think about the amount of people who are uninsured and then the services that they're getting at, you know, maybe a local community clinic or by word of mouth, you know, a lot of times, yeah, in some cases that might help, you know, for some people, but when it comes to broader issues that span beyond the scope of what they're able to treat in these local community clinics or what you're able to kind of take care of at home, it becomes a huge deal for some people. And I think that even thinking about how the pandemic and everything has unfolded and how the emphasis on telehealth has been placed, there are so many resources that we can use in those spaces to combine telehealth with being able to have levels of resources within Medicaid, within Medicare, and various other things, even though the people say, oh, well, that's not going to be covered or various other things. If you can get women into maybe a support group where they're doing therapy and it's a group of them, they meet maybe like twice a week or, you know, a couple times a month, something of that nature, or a forum for women to really discuss the various health issues and be connected with physicians who may volunteer their time for, you know, issues that may be primary care in nature, mental health, OBGYNs. You see a lot of these services being extremely utilized, especially during the pandemic, where people really, really need these spaces to be able to talk to someone. And if they, if people really decided, just as you mentioned at the beginning with the University of Chicago saying, okay, what do you, what does the community need? That could be something that they could utilize and doctors could do work that is pro bono because certain um, specialties have to do at least, you know, a certain amount of pro bono work across the board. If we can get these people in these spaces to really have these conversations with people of color, to educate people in their communities, whether it be through a telehealth visit or a space where it's an open forum and, you know, a doctor kind of enters like a room type thing, a chat room with people where they can kind of discuss various things that may come up on their mind or maybe issues of concern. And they can basically triage them in a sense and tell them, well, maybe this is something that you need to be able to seek further services or evaluation for. I think that that could really bridge, bridge a gap for a lot of different disparities and inequities that we're seeing across the board, especially in terms of women's health. I agree. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. 
and like as you were speaking I'm I'm thinking about like just like the zip code that I'm in right now the 60628 the far south side of Chicago 14% of people in this community do not have health insurance and 22% of the community actually reports on a self-reported survey of course that they don't receive needed care um, and we start talking about that's just literally a couple of communities that's a high number of people Talking about people who are already experiencing severe disinvestment, people who are already experiencing a lot of poor health outcomes. So that's, that's huge. And one of the other things that I don't know if we actually focus on yet, but one of the biggest pieces to the, what I'm learning in my work is that um, health literacy is important too, going back to your point on health education. Because I've worked in health systems, I've worked, um, and I've been working since I was 16 in doing community work or public health work or in the health system. And I've seen in many different cases across my young life <laughs> that a lot of times, like, we assume that people understand the complexities of health systems as well. Mm -hmm. And I've actually sat in classes where community health workers have told us, and, and we've worked to build our health literacy as public health professionals, because people, we think we, they understand, but they don't. And this is not to say that people are not capable of understanding is for us to say okay maybe we need to do a better job of explaining what this looks like or how we're going to help them I remember I had a community health worker tell me that she actually went and was showing someone how to um, insert their insulin and they I guess she did a demonstration on an orange to kind of show like what it would look like how it affects them and so they noticed that like this person's this is a black woman as well. They noticed that this person, that her health outcomes weren't increasing. They're like, what's happening here? Like, why isn't this working? They're expecting a certain type of outcome. And they weren't getting it. Well, they, she had the community health worker had her do it in front of her. Like, hey, like, show me how you're, you're actually taking your medicine and stuff. And she was actually taking the orange and, and giving the insulin shot to the orange. Wow. And, then she, and then she would eat the orange. And she thought that that's how she was getting her medicine. And we see this so in so many cases, whether it's like, that's a very um, severe example, but even on a basic level, I've had women say to me, I signed these papers and then they've gotten hysterectomies and then not known that they were getting a hysterectomy because they didn't understand language that was being described to them. They didn't, under, they didn't understand the language that was on the paper that they were signing. And they just say, oh, you sign here and you sign here. And next thing you know, they can't have kids. And they're like, oh my God, I've actually seen and witnessed that happen. And in a lot of cases, I've actually worked with a, quite a few doctors, which is pretty cool, where they've, they've taught other doctors how to explain their thought processes because they understand their thoughts and they go from A to Z in their head within their 15 minutes. And we're like, doc, how did you come to this? And they're not explaining what's happening and, and you know, and so what the result of that is, is they say, take this medication or take, or you do practice more yoga, but they're not saying why they're, and I'm not saying this is stereotyping offices because that is not true. We do have great doctors, great clinicians in medicine, but the, the vast majority in what we've known to be true is that these things exist. And so we have to do a better job of explaining our work. And even public health, people always ask me, what is public health? <laughs> yeah. And, and I was like, uh, which definition do I want to use today? Because <laughs> it's all encompassing. It is. Or like some people ask me, like, what's the difference between public health or the American health system? And 
it's really difficult to explain somebody who does not have, who has not sat in two years of an MPH program with me. Because then I want to talk to them about epi, I want to talk to them about policy, I want to talk to them about yeah. data systems and, and all these things. And I really end up having to say, well, it's everything. Anything that you do could technically be public health, um, right. whether it's environments that you live, environments that you work or play, or it's, it's many different multi levels and it's complex, just as, the, just as the American health system is, too. And so, all that to say that if I have, just think about this if I am someone who barely made it out of high school, who I'm struggling to live, I don't have a job, or I got three kids and I'm trying to help them be great. Do I have time, number one, to understand this complex system? And number two, are you going to take the time to explain it to me? And that's what I mean when I say we have to meet people where they're at, because we can't just assume that that they know that we know their story. We can't just assume that they understand our our minds and our work either. I think that's that's such an important point. And I'm so glad that you brought up health literacy because it's a huge deal. We were discussing this in one of my courses the other day. We talked about, okay, say for instance, you want to have, you know, a higher percentage of young females utilizing condoms or utilizing birth control and other contraceptives. Think about the fact of do they even know what those things mean? Do they even know what's happening with their bodies? What, you know, just the, just the overall idea of what you're putting in certain pamphlets and how that reaches a certain generation of people or a certain, you know, demographic of people. A lot of times they'll often say, right, language in such a way that a third or fourth grader can understand that mm-hmm. because a vast majority of Americans are unfortunately not educated. A lot of them don't finish high school. A lot of them don't venture into, you know, a four-year degree program. And then, you know, if they get a four-year degree, then even beyond that, the graduate school level, it's a very small percentage of the population, let alone let it be African-American or a community of color. You're going to have basically unicorns in those situations, unfortunately, because we only encompass about 5% of physicians in the United States. There's 328 million people in this country. That's not a huge amount of people that are African-American that are Mm -hmm. in physician um, positions, as well as the fact that we have 13% of the overall population that is African-American, that is indicated as African-American on a U.S. census. You don't think about the people that are also in other communities of color, other people that may not identify as African-American because they are of mixed race. So then you have all of these things compounding and the fact that some of this data doesn't encompass certain communities and that we kind of draw the line of, is your mother black? Is your father black? Okay, well, then you're African-American. But, you know, mixed races also can be included in some of these um, studies that we're doing and some of the things that we're discussing because they they seem to fall on this, they teeter this line of, you know. Exactly. So that can be a thing that we can also really look into in terms of, you know, how we're managing our data, how we're looking at, you know, various statistics that are affecting these communities, because they're being, you know, they're living in these same environments, they're growing up in situations where their outcomes are very, very similar, even though they may not self identify in these particular groups, but it becomes a thing where we have to also understand that, especially in terms of health literacy. And it was really closely tied, and I'm sure you probably learned much about this in your coursework as well, because I know I did. 
really closely tied to health literacy is cultural competency as well. Um, and so that goes beyond just the language that we're using, but also to um, how do we really start to accept and acknowledge um, different types of cultures in our work as well. Um, and I can give a couple of quick examples. Like when I was working at the um, OBGYN office, um, we, we sometimes would see like in some cultures where women cannot see male doctors. Um, so we will have to kind of navigate and make sure that when we schedule their appointment, that we understand that because we don't want to put them in a room with um, a, a, doc a male doctor who's about to do a pap on them. That's like a huge cultural thing. Or when we start talking about um, this, we see a lot of this, not necessarily in OBGYN, but like with general practitioners or like primary care where, um, and in some cases, like mostly geriatric communities where doctors don't tend to talk to the patient. They talk to like the younger person in the room. And that's a cultural thing too, because in many cultures, elders are well-respected. So not acknowledging them in a doctor's appointment, that's disrespectful to them and to their culture. So we don't tend to always think about that and in in get into the nuts and the bolts of that, but that's a big deal as well. And then um, one of the things I wanted to mention too, which I'm learning more about this now, which is really, really cool. Like outside of my nonprofit, I um, do work as a public health practitioner as well. And what we're seeing across the country is all the things that we're talking about, people are really trying to capture that in a very safe and, um, and trustworthy process. And that I mentioned earlier offline was the health information exchanges and community information exchange, where we're seeing um, a lot of organizations, systems, and even in some cases, um, government agencies try to participate in capturing data that tells the entire story. So that when we get into a room with a doctor, or when we're talking about informing policy and systems changes, we have evidence-based information that, that shares the story. And when I say evidence-based, these data systems go beyond your race. They go beyond, do you have diabetes? Do you, are you a smoker? Education, they tackle access to food, access to, and in some cases, um, refugees, and, and are you a single mom? And how many kids do you have? And, and not, not to say that they get into like all of your life story, but, it's really difficult to improve someone's health if they don't have the entire story. Because like, for instance, when I was that community health worker I was telling you about, one of her clients that we were discussing actually had asthma. And um, they, were, they checked the house for mold, they checked the house for this, they had been, this patient was diligently working to, you know, to advance their health outcomes. And what they found was this person had a ton of plugins in their house. <laughs> wow. and the and the plugin and they removed she just one day was like you know what I'm going to try this and they removed all the plugins and and that person literally changed did like a total 360 health-wise but the thing about that example that I love to share is that the health system can't do that <laughs> they can't they don't have the capacity to understand all of that about you and especially in most cases these doctors only have like 15 minutes in some cases less so they can't capture every aspect of your life in a nutshell and give you advice and help you do, you know, prescribe and capture all that in just a little wiggle room. So these community health workers, they are life changers. They have like an opportunity and they provide a space where we can get, get a deeper dive into what um, people's lives are actually like. 
I've seen like policy advocates and things like that go and capture stories. I've seen in some cases, in some instances too, that we even have communications folks go into the communities and you tell me your story and I'll go tell it to them um, with your approval because we cannot make decisions about how to, we can't, I can't prescribe you a ton of medicine. I can't just keep leaning on that any longer because that's not a save all. Mm-hmm. And so it's really cool to see in my line of work, these larger organizations who have the capacity to build interoperability systems that can talk to each other and share this information in a way that is not violating my human rights, in a way that is not violating HIPAA, <laughs> because the, those details, my everyday experiences are being captured to improve outcomes. And I'm, so I'm super excited to see those databases and those data systems talk to each other um, and, and really do the work that has not been done before, because that is something that's new. And I'm not even sure that many people know that that exists, because I surely didn't know prior to last year. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that one of the things that you brought to the forefront was the thought process of something that we definitely talk about a lot of times in public health is really conducting these needs assessment surveys, whether it's Mm -hmm. quantitative or qualitative. You have to understand that it's not just about how many, that it's also about the quality of the data information that you're obtaining from people. What are their social determinants of health? What does their everyday look like in terms of really shaping our picture of how their health outcomes are really being affected. A lot of times we don't, as you use with the example of the plugins, people don't realize that asthma can be environmental. Mm-hmm. So looking at certain environmental triggers, such as, you know, things that may even be scented in the house or having a pet. A lot of times people don't think about those things when it comes to sharing that information with their physician or their pulmonologist or something of that nature, they're just thinking, okay, I'm going to treat them because, you know, they're having issues and they're in crisis right now, but can we treat some of the underlying issues? Can we ask the pertinent questions that can really get down to these people's health circumstances? Do you have a cat at home? Do you have a dog? You know, how often are you vacuuming your floor? And these are things that we, we ask a lot of times in public health because we're trained to do so. We have a little bit more time to really sit down and marinate on these social determinants of health, which really brings me to, as we close out this, this podcast episode, which I feel like has been phenomenal. I could talk about this for days on end with you. What are things that you feel that we can do in public health, things that are easy strategies to really mitigate some of these health initiatives that we're trying to spearhead for women of color or just women in general? Oh, that's such a loaded question. (laughs) Give it to me. That that could be another three hours. (laughs) Right. I can say so much to answer that question, but if I could just sum it up, I think there there's three things that I will, could just say that's top of mind. One is education. We, like we said, we have to continue to teach each other. And I say each other as a, member of, as a member of community and a member of a professional group, how important it is for people to have ownership of their health outcomes. Um, for instance, t- teach each other, like, what is social determinants of health? Because some people just think it's it's literally just education, but no, it's institutionalized policy, it's racism, it's gender, it's ethnicity, it's shelter, it's education, nutrition, empowerment, it's anything that's greater than biology, really. Right. And so how do we educate folks, number one? And then number two, how do we have shared power? Because traditionally that has not been the case. And what we're seeing is that that 
is really trickling down generation through generation through generation. And it's, it's really killing us because we don't get a, we don't have a voice. And, and like you said, like, and that goes, that can be talked on so many different levels, shared voice in the community, shared voice within these systems, shared voice in the, the dynamic of how things are thought through in policy. So that would be my second point. And then my, my last and final point as it relates to strategizing is how do we all come to a table together? Because one of the biggest things that I talk about all the time is we do work in silos. And that comes from many different <laughs> perspectives and concepts because even the medicine now, back when, as my mom would always tell me, you know, back in the day, we didn't have specialists. They went to a single doctor who did everything. And yeah. now we have OBGYN, we have geriatrics, we have gastroenterology, endocrinology, all these different silos in medicine. And then even outside of the health system, we have all these different silos. We have social services, we have public health, we have like all these different things. And that's hard to navigate, not just navigating for the participant and for the members of the community, but also for each other as professionals. <laughs> How yeah. do we bring everybody to a table? And that's and that is really easier said than done because of how historically these, these systems and these silos were built. Um, but I think that would be like the biggest um, way that we can strategize. And I know this is being thought of now more than ever because of COVID, but even outside of COVID, because COVID is one thing I'm not trying to downplay because it is horrific. <laughs> um, but outside of COVID, there are still massive disparities that are happening that's been happening and there are things that are not being changed and in fact they're being exasperated because of COVID oh Uh, for sure exactly so how do we bring all these silos together so that we can work and get work together so that we can actually save lives because what is happening is we're killing humanity because we don't know how to work together because we don't understand how to bring people to the table together. Everybody wants to be powerful. Everybody wants to be mighty. But in, a, in reality, what's happening is we are really just killing each other off. And, and specifically, we're killing black and brown people at an alarming rate that is literally killing humanity. We're destroying humanity and for what? Right. It's, it's all about an idea of, I want to be the top this, but in getting to the top, you have to also work with people that are on your team, work with people that, you know, whose lives you're going to affect. So it becomes a thing where you can't say, well, there's a social hierarchy and I'm here and they're there. It's not a thing. We all, at the end of the day, we all put our pants on the same way. We all have level playing fields in terms of, you know, starting life out in a sense. Now, granted, there are some people that start off a little bit better than others, but also understanding that when people don't have the level of equity that you have, help them to achieve that. Help them to get to these places where they otherwise couldn't have been because someone didn't step up for them in the beginning, or they just didn't have the resources or the capability to do so on their own because they didn't want to ruffle feathers or create a situation where that's just blown out of proportion. So I think those are amazing points. And I appreciate the fact that you're here today and that you accepted my invitation to join in on this topic because I think it's such a phenomenal and profound topic that we have to discuss, especially not even just in public health, but within our own communities because we're dying at unprecedented rates. And I'm so glad that you really mentioned the fact that 
COVID, of course, COVID is a huge thing that's what's on the forefront, but have we talked about any of these other things? It's like they've been sidelined because COVID is the thing that's in our face right now. And we have to realize that there's still crises going on, not even just in the United States, but also other epidemics that other countries that are facing on a global scale, whereas it might be Ebola, malaria, various other things that we have to really start to think of, oh my gosh, these are things on top of the pandemic. How do we make sure that we don't have a situation where people are put in these positions where their lives are being affected in these detrimental ways that have deleterious effects on not only them, but communities that will, you know, continue thereafter after them. So thank you so much for everything that you've contributed in this conversation. And thank you all so much for joining in on our conversation about women's health initiatives and public health initiatives and how we can really bridge the gap between a lot of these communities and between a lot of these stakeholders. So please be safe and well, everyone, and be sure that you are really empowering yourselves and empowering your communities and really being the best that you can be so that you can move forward and have better health outcomes. Thanks so much for joining us here. Take care, everyone.